Well, good morning, church family. Special welcome to those of you who are uh, just here for Thanksgiving and joining in with friends and family. If this isn't a place that you call home, we're grateful to have you here with us in this space. Uh, My name is Brody. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really excited this morning to get to open up God's word with you. But before we move uh, there and continuing with the series that we started last week, I'd love to make you aware of just a few things that are happening in and around the life of our church in the coming days. First is we have baptisms coming up. So baptism, uh, for us, we just describe this as it's an outward confession of an inward decision. It's an opportunity to let uh, your body of believers, the church, know that you're all in and that you want to follow Jesus. It's not an arrival point, but it's an acknowledgement that you are on the journey. And it's, uh, it's an important decision. And if you've wondered or had questions about whether it's the right time for you to make that decision, uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you. And so next weekend on the 14th, 15th, and the weekend after, we have baptism prep classes, which will be taking place. Also at our website, spac.ca slash baptism, any questions you might have, you could direct there. Uh, you can fill out the information, and one of our pastors would love to get in contact with you and help you if this would be the next step for you. Second thing, uh, we do an annual food drive for our We Care ministry, which is a ministry that takes place downtown Edmonton uh, with many underprivileged individuals coming for a church experience. They're there right now. They're there 52 weekends a year, and they're doing uh, their annual food drive. And so we want to make you aware that next week is the last full week to get your donations in for that food drive, and we would love nothing more than to overflow those bins and to have to call on help for more vehicles to drive down all of the goods that come in, and so we'd love to have you participate in that. If you're wondering, what do I give to something like that, you can go to our website at uh, spac.ca slash we care, and there's a little banner at the top that says the food drive. If you click that, we've just curated a, a shopping list. You could literally just take that to the store and pick up the items that are in most need right now. That'd be a great, tremendous encouragement and help uh, for our teams there. The last thing is that we've got membership class that's coming up uh, next Sunday, October 15th, as well as we're offering an online uh, version, a Zoom version on Wednesday, October 18th. Membership is a way for you to just kind of take that next step with our church family saying, I'm all in with where this place is going and I want to be a a, a more significant part of, of the purpose and the priorities that this church is all about. And so if you'd like to know more about what that means or what that looks like, we'd love to have a conversation with you. And again, all of the registration information is available at our website. Okay. If you were here last weekend, you know that Greg kicked off a brand new series that we are calling Deeply Rooted. And in this series, we're trying to work through, we're going to work through the entirety of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And the goal in all of this is to try and define what we mean when we say we want to become deeply rooted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our our purpose statement, that we would be a place to belong and become deeply rooted followers of Jesus. And so we're using Jesus's sermon to help us articulate what we think deeply rooted actually looks like. If you have a Bible with you, some of you even have paper Bibles with you. Thanks for doing that. It's an encouragement. I'd love to have you open it up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of this passage for this weekend. 
Now, I mentioned in our newsletter, if you get that, our weekly uh, just email newsletter, that this text is a little bit confounding. And not because it's, it's too complex, but because it doesn't actually fit our metric of understanding regarding the whole idea of blessing and what we think blessing should be. Now, you participated, some of you, with a game, so you're warmed up, right? So I'm going to ask for some crowd participation from you. So I want you to shout out just whatever comes to mind when you think of someone who's been blessed. What do you think of for, for them? Why would they describe themselves as being blessed? What are some ideas? Pizza? Did I hear that right? Okay, sure. I think I heard peace, too. What else? Friendship? Joy? (laughs) You are laughing way too much at that joke. And for those of you who are at home, you didn't get the joke, and it's good that you didn't get it. And if you want to get jokes like that, you got to be here. you got (laughs) to come and be here with us. What do you think about, like, the rest of the world? Like, you guys are giving kind of churchy answers other than that last one. Thanks, Jamie. You're on your way, just for the record, to my journey. What else? What does the world say? What would they say is blessing? Riches. Yeah, money. That one comes to mind. Health. Yeah. Food, security, yeah, absolutely. All of these things, we can come up with a a quick definition, right? When we think of the word blessed, we think of people being being happy. We think of people being healthy. If you're in the American church, oftentimes we might say that it's wealthy or prosperity. But each of us can have a picture in mind when it comes to the understanding of the word blessing. What we're going to see, however, in our text this weekend is that Jesus actually takes that whole idea and he flips it on its head. He flips the idea of blessing entirely upside down. And he does so by, by sort of undoing the blessing and curses theme of the Old Testament. In effect, by saying those whom we think are actually cursed might actually be the ones who are truly, in fact, blessed. Before we get there. I want us to do a little bit of work on our way to get there, some context that I hope will just put some tools in your toolbox to help you participate and work through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount with us, okay? So in chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's describing that Jesus is on one of his uh, five main ministry tours. And so he's traveling all over Galilee, he's preaching, and along the way he's doing lots of healing ministry as well. And so word about Jesus, about what he was saying, and more specifically what he was doing starts to spread far and wide. And as a result, the most afflicted, the suffering, the paralyzed, the demon-possessed, and everyone who's with or has an affliction is being brought to the person of Jesus in order that he might touch them with his healing touch. And so with that, obviously, a large crowd begins to form and follow Jesus on his movement through, which brings us then to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, Verses 1 and 2, Matthew records this. When he, he is Jesus here, when he saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying. Now pause here just for a moment. A couple of things to note. If you were to do a a Google image search on the Sermon of the Mount, most of the pictures that you would actually find show Jesus teaching this great multitude of people. 
But Matthew's actually really clear here. He's left the crowd. He's left the large group. And instead, he's sitting down now with his disciples and beginning to teach them. The them there are his disciples. And the term disciple here is broader than just the 12 that usually come to mind when we talk about and use the term disciple. These are the individuals who along the way of Jesus' ministry have come to chosen or come to a place of chosen, choosing to trust and believe in the person of Jesus. And so they're actually now following him. Which besides at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus hasn't even called the last of his 12 closest disciples. But this is a, a broader group than the 12 we think of, but it's a much smaller, more intimate group than the large crowd. And it's with this small group of devoted followers that Jesus decides to teach and speak to, which we're going to study what he has to say over these coming weeks. Another side note, when, where Jesus was at in this moment would have, at best, if we were to consider it today, been more of considered like, like a hill rather than a mountain. So I pulled an image off the internet of a probable location. This is most likely the actual place where Jesus had this sermon take place. It's beautiful. The, the land of, or the body of water that you're seeing there is the Sea of Galilee. And so I think sometimes it's just helpful for us to see images like this, see things like this, to remember that this is, this is a real place with real people at a real time that we can actually today go and visit. And I don't know about you, but that's a location I think I could spend some time at. But this would have been the backdrop to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, mountain is a bit hyperbolic. You can see that here. And most scholars believe that the reason for this is because Matthew's wanting to contrast Jesus with Moses. Matthew's trying to reach back to the moment when Moses brought the law to the people coming down from Mount Sinai, now contrasted here with Jesus bringing this new instruction. He's trying to draw this connection, which Jesus would actually do the same thing when he said of himself in this very sermon that he did not come to abolish the law of Moses, but to fulfill the law of Moses. So context, hopefully, helps us frame all that will follow in this series. These instructions were given to the disciples as the original audience, which is our first and most important step or hermeneutic to attempt to discern what then these words might and should mean for us today as well. Now, Matthew, like I mentioned earlier, actually preserves five major discourses or five major messages of Jesus that coincide with Jesus' activities throughout his ministry life. And each of these discourses are key to understanding one of the main goals or main purposes that Matthew had in writing his gospel down, meaning that he wrote these messages down so that the church for all ages, that includes us, might be able to carry out one of the crucial components to Jesus' final instructions or great commands mission in teaching them, teaching the disciples to obey everything that I have commanded you. Last weekend, Greg preached the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And while it was really beautiful and meaningful for so many of you, there were several of you who struggled with hearing and comprehending some of the things that Jesus said, thinking, how, how could Jesus say some of these things that he's, that he's saying, and how could he call us to some of the things that feels impossible to be called towards? And that's a, a really important thing for us to kind of wrestle down a little bit. 
Because our perception or picture, our understanding of Jesus cannot come from what we believe about him or what we want to believe about him. It actually can only come from scripture itself because that's our clearest picture of who Jesus is. And so if we find ourselves struggling at times with with Jesus' teaching aligning with what we perceive about Jesus, the thing we need to wrestle within ourselves isn't the idea of that can't be Jesus, but instead perhaps my picture of Jesus might be fundamentally off. Lastly, before we move to the text, we have to understand right here at the beginning that the point of this sermon was not to give us a checklist of the things that we must do or understand or ascribe to in order that we might achieve or receive the kingdom of God. Or another way of saying that is that we must not confuse the results of participating in kingdom life with the means of obtaining kingdom life. Jesus isn't saying Do these things. Follow this checklist in order to have kingdom life. But instead, he's saying, when you participate in kingdom life, these are the things that will inevitably flow and follow from it. Because here's the deal. The kind of life that Jesus is going to point towards in the Sermon on the Mount will be the spirit-empowered result of those who've already responded to the gospel of the kingdom, not the means by which they enter into it. Simply put, What Jesus will describe is impossible for us to experience outside the work of Christ and the moving of his spirit. And if we try to treat these words as behavior modification material, we're going to end up really, really discouraged. See, the Sermon on the Mount must be read in the context of Jesus' overall earthly ministry, which included the, the redemptive necessary work of the cross, which reminds us that we won't ever achieve the ideal on this side of eternity, hence why Jesus' sacrifice was actually necessary. Again, Jesus' teachings and words here and living into those things is not a means of entering the kingdom, but an outgrowth of kingdom life already within us, only made possible by the Spirit's work through us. And while the Sermon on the Mount paints a lofty ideal that, that as I've just said, is impossible for fallen humans to obtain, obtain, on the flip side, it still remains an ideal that the disciples are supposed to strive for and try to live out under God's grace and with the Spirit. And Jesus' words at the end of chapter 5 are really important and pointed as he summarizes all these things by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And lastly, the Sermon on the Mount needs to be understood both in the now, but also in the not quite yet. This is about Jesus' kingdom breaking into the world that were, were ways that were current and active at his arrival and the outworking of his, of his mission. But it also speaks to kingdom realities that will only be finally and fully fulfilled in the future. It's a lot, I know. But I I hope you you see the importance of just kind of understanding this context, that it's helpful and useful to you to frame up the next several weeks together. And so now for this weekend, let's go back to Jesus' sermon. Jesus has sat down. He's with a small group, super beautiful location. And he's about to teach his disciples. And so let's pick up on what he says. Chapter 5, verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, I'm, I'm going to assume, I'm going to make a presumption, and that is that these verses are really familiar to probably most of you in the room. Aside from the Lord's Prayer, which is also found in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the next most famous or well-known part of the sermon for sure. And the term that's given to these little sayings of Jesus in this section is called the Beatitudes. If you're following along in a Bible and not just looking at the screen, if you're following along, your, your Bible actually probably has a little title that says the Beatitudes as a heading over this part. And so what is a Beatitude? Now, I'll just be real honest. Before I knew any better, my brain just put two words together and I assumed that this was a combination of the word beautiful and attitude. Beatitude, a beautiful attitude. And while we'll see in a weird sort of way that that kind of works here, it's wrong. And it's not how you should do any scholarly biblical study, okay? So don't do what I did and just make assumptions. Now, we read English Bibles, right? Yeah, some of you, I hope you're reading Bibles, and probably English is going to be the best for most of you, but we read English Bibles. You should read your Bibles. If you're not reading your Bibles, I encourage you to read your Bibles. It's important to read your Bibles. Our Bibles are English Bibles for most of us. In any case, the original languages that the books of the Bible were written in were actually Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And in the third century, the scriptures were taken in those three languages and translated fully into one language, into Greek in what we call the Septuagint. Later, in the fourth century, the scriptures were then translated by the Catholic Church into Latin. And it's in this Latin translation, which we know as the Vulgate, where the word beatus shows up. As the first word of each of these sections in the Latin is the word beati which the Latin word is translated from the Greek word makarios. Now, some modern English translations, your Bible might have actually translated that word makarios to be happy or fortunate. But the closest word we do truly have in the English language is the word blessed. Are you, are you still following with me here? Jesus begins each section by saying blessed is, which is the Latin translation would have been beatus, hence the Beatitudes, yeah, you're getting it with me. Here we go. Here's what's important. Makarios, the Greek word, is a state of existence in relationship with God in which a person is blessed, listen to this, is blessed from God's perspective. It's really important for us to understand that word and, and what it actually means. It's, it's people are blessed from God's perspective even when they don't feel happy or aren't currently or presently experiencing good fortune. It doesn't mean, it's not a word that means the arrival of a specific blessing, nor is it a call to live a life worthy of blessing. Rather, it's an acknowledgement that the ones who are indicated in this section are, by definition and declaration of Jesus, blessed. Negative feelings, absence of feelings, adverse conditions cannot take away the blessedness of those who exist in relationship with God, or to make it even simpler, Makarios forces us to understand blessing as blessing even when it doesn't feel 
or look like blessing to us. So beatitude is all about blessing, even when we don't see it or feel it. And that's on clear display as as Jesus paints the picture of blessing and and the ones who are blessed and experiencing it as as being backwards to who we would assume are, are blessed. And again, sorry, it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but helpful, hopefully, in helping us understand why these things are called beatitudes. But the whole Sermon on the Mount opens up with these beatitudes. And that's important. That's done on purpose for us. And we have to give attention to it because the beatitudes serve as an introduction, which in turn paints the picture on where the whole rest of the sermon is about to go. But even one step further, the beatitudes summarize the essence of the whole sermon's message, giving in a nutshell the way in which the kingdom makes its impact in the lives of those who choose to respond to it. Here's the deal, and this was done on purpose by Jesus. The character of this kingdom life actually goes against everything that the people who would have been hearing it would have understood and believed. From an Old Testament perspective, we've talked several messages over this last few years about the idea of blessing around here. That Israel as a people group were a people that were blessed in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And the Old Testament spoke about blessings and curses as these two diametric realities. And would speak about the pathway towards blessing and how the people were to live as well as the road which would lead to cursing when people chose to live in a way that was outside of God. Ideal. And yet now, as I mentioned off the top, Jesus seems to be flipping the script entirely and putting things in reverse or upside down order, indicating that those who we would presume are experiencing the curses of the Lord are in actuality the very ones who are truly blessed. And so herein lies the whole point of this weekend's message, okay? If you haven't been paying attention, I need you now for just these one minute, okay? If you have nothing else that you take from this experience this weekend other than this, this is the main point. I don't want you to miss it, okay? I want you to hear this so, so clearly. Blessing is blessing even when it doesn't look like blessing or doesn't feel like blessing because it's been spoken to you and over you and your situations and your life and your family and yourself. But here's the most important part. Blessing is not what we are after. Blessing is is not the goal. The goal instead is Jesus himself and responding to him and his kingdom, which will bring about blessings that can actually transcend ourselves and our understanding of what blessing actually means. We are not blessings people. We are Jesus people. We long for him not for the things that we want from him. And let me make no bones about it. This is not an easy journey. This is messy and hard and confusing and oftentimes can be the very thing that drives people away from following Jesus entirely because our understanding of of blessing, our, our hope for blessing translates to health and happiness and prosperity. And so when those things are not experienced or oftentimes the opposite is experienced, then that can be highly disorienting for us. But at the core of this disorientation usually is the misaligned expectation of priority in that we're longing for blessing in our lives when our longing should be for Jesus himself. 
And when we long for Jesus and him alone, our circumstances, our situations, our struggles, they can all be right-sized for what they are. These temporary realities existing only for a very short time in light of the eternal promises of hope and blessing which are to come. This is something that the Apostle Paul uh, understood, he wrestled with, but he, but he understood and would later encourage a struggling church who was experiencing a lot of things that didn't feel like blessing when he said this. He said, therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And so we do not focus on the things that are seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My friends, sit on that for just a moment here. Soak some of that in. You see, our, our problem is that we long desperately for the temporal to be eternal, all the while forgetting entirely about the eternal, or we choose not to focus on that which is truly eternal, namely Christ and a future with him. And so we try desperately to find meaning and purpose and identity and security in the things that we can see, the things we can grasp, the things that we can hold, the things that we can control, all the while completely missing out on the things that actually matter and will matter way beyond our short and insignificant time here on this planet as we know it. So church, we don't long for blessing. We long for Christ we don't focus on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. And only when, only when we can get that can we understand what Jesus meant through these Beatitudes. And so with all of that now in our background, let's work through these Beatitudes together. And this is going to be rapid fire, so hold on tight. Jesus says this, blessed are the poor in the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I love how Jesus opens this section up. Central to this whole idea is the realization that you cannot and will not ever be able to save yourself. That's the idea behind being poor in spirit. It's an acknowledgement that salvation cannot be self-actualized. This is the beautiful beginning of the blessings in general. It's a posture of absolute dependency on Christ and Christ alone, which in turn is the only means in which we can experience the kingdom of God. Jesus says if you want the kingdom, then you've got to surrender. He goes on, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now the one who is mourned has released self-satisfaction and the ability to rejoice in oneself or one's own accomplishments. And the beauty of the gospel as a whole is that while we mourn, we do so differently. We do it without despair. And that's the key because we all know, most of us know, the end of the story. And we ought to mourn over the things that God mourns. We ought to mourn over our personal sin and social evils in the world because those are the things that God mourns. And as we do so, we can become agents and instruments of his good news. But Jesus is clear. Mourners are blessed. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. 
Again, this is so upside down, and I hope you see it. It was then, it is now. Don't let this pass you by. All around us in the world today, as it was back then, is the reality that it's the domineering, it's the aggressive, it's the tyrannical. Those are the ones who dominate the earth and establish their own kingdoms. But here, powerfully, Jesus says it's the gentle, it's the humble who will inherit the earth. Now, humble or gentle here doesn't mean weak. It's those who can patiently endure so that they might bring about God's purpose on earth for others. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they build. Now, the picture Jesus is painting here is a picture of someone who is starving or dehydrated. It's a picture of true passion and also desperation. It's a longing to live out the truth of their beliefs individually as well as corporately. A longing for the things to be known and experienced the way that God intended them to be. And the filled here, or they will be filled, represents that there's no longer any need, nor is there even any room for anything else anymore. And this filling is of God himself, completely and fully and utterly and finally satisfying, addressing all of the deepest longings and desires of mankind. And if that sounds appealing to any of you today, Jesus says, then hunger and thirst for righteousness... Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy, we know this, is absolutely central to the gospel of Christ. Luke already talked about that with us this morning. We have not been given that which we deserve. We've been given the opposite. We've been given what we do not deserve. It's this beautiful paradox of Jesus. And Jesus declares that mercy actually has to be evident. It must be evident in the lives of those who have been shown and received mercy, the greatest mercy that the world has ever seen. We show mercy because we have deeply and profoundly benefited from mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus is talking about purity or cleanliness. He's saying that the purity of the heart is what produces external purity. That that it starts on the inside of each of us, not on the outside. And and this was his argument, his tension with the religious elite. He called them out for washing the outside of the cup, presenting as though they were clean to the world around them, while on the inside they were absolutely filthy. It's a message about integrity. Not showing something to be true that isn't true. Jesus says that the pure in heart will see God. Now seeing God was this unattainable reality for Israel because of his holiness, which was contrasted by their lack of it and their brokenness. But all the while, the people, they desperately longed to see God. They longed to see his glory Jesus says that access to God's face, to his glory, to see him, comes through our purity. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. A peace here comes from the word shalom, a word that means completeness and wholeness in every area of one's life, including one's relationship with God, with neighbors, and the world. And peace is only possible through the one who himself is peace, the the self-declared prince of peace. 
And children of God here, again, was this core longing identity for Israel, which much of the time they took for granted. Jesus says that that sonship, that, that kinship is realized when we make peace. And peacemaking is ultimately only possible when we acknowledge the source of all peace, our peacemaker, the one who once and for all made lasting peace between God and humanity. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Again, clarity here. The Beatitudes are not, they cannot be entrance requirements to the kingdom of heaven, or else what Jesus says here is that only martyrs make it into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, he's comforting those who have suffered undeserved persecution because of their seeking of righteousness. And the beautiful foreshadowing for each of us who know the rest of the story is the ultimate example of Jesus as the one who was profoundly unjustly persecuted, which would provide for us the very way for us to inherit the kingdom of heaven for ourselves. And so in the bare minimum, I hope you see that Jesus gets your pain. He understands your struggle. He understands your suffering. You don't struggle or suffer alone, but he gets it deeply and profoundly, and he says, you are blessed. And then Jesus seems to take a bit of a corner. I don't know how he does it, but, but I'm guessing he kind of, you know, wrapped things up and sent the broader crowd of disciples on their way. And it seems like now he, he pulls in the 10 or 11 that are currently with him in this moment. And he speaks to, to them individually, directly to that smaller group of disciples, the future apostles. He's speaking now for the future realities for them and undoubtedly what they were already experiencing. He says this. He says, you, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and say, falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. He says, be glad and rejoice. Because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, he wants them to anticipate trouble based on the message of hope that that they're going to deliver in that just as Jesus walked that road of struggle and suffering because of his message, they too would experience the same thing. Again, rich foreshadowing, encouraging them not to hope for the easy way forward, but instead to try and find joy in what will follow because their goal is not in any way, shape, or form earthly fame or promise or status, but instead their goal is simply for Christ and Christ alone and for his kingdom eternal. And I gotta believe that it was words like these that Paul would have been told that he would have heard, sorry, Peter, hearing those words, Jesus speaking these in the Sermon on the Mount in this moment, Peter, the one who would painfully live out this prophecy of Jesus, I got to believe that these words were ringing in the back of his mind when he encouraged the church and declared this. He said, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. And then listen to what he says here. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And those, my friends, are the Beatitudes. 
And the rest of Jesus' sermon will build on these and point back to them. And in just a moment here, the team, which gracefully just snuck out behind me here, uh, they're going to come and lead us to reflect with a song. A couple weeks ago, this song was, was presented to me as an idea on how to, to wrap up this service. And I jumped at the opportunity because it's just so perfectly puts a bow on top of all that we've been talking about and working through together this weekend. But church, hear me clear. May our deepest longing as followers of Jesus not be blessing, but be Jesus himself. And if we can get that right... Then and only then can we step into the bestowed truth and reality of blessing, even when it doesn't look like or doesn't feel like the way blessing should look or feel like. Because again, we are not blessings people. We are Jesus people. And he is the one we long for. Jesus, take this. 
church. Um, at this time, I'll just invite the prayer team to come forward, um, and if you need someone to pray with or you just um, want to be prayed for, you're welcome to come join up at the front here. Um, happy Thanksgiving to everyone, and I hope you have a blessed week. No greater sacrifice. What he's done, what he's done.